all, I am Patrick Farrar, and thank you for joining us for another installment of the Opinionated Stance podcast. Please do me a huge favor. Visit OpinionatedStance.com. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Facebook. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Also, subscribe to the YouTube channel. We are watching. If you have any comments, questions, show ideas, please reach out. We always love to hear back or hear feedback from our listeners. And thank you again for listening to all the shows. The love is very, very much appreciated. Today, we will be exploring the topic of how to build a software product. We'll specifically look at what it takes to grow, build, and retain a development team and how developers can identify product opportunities in the marketplace from a different perspective than a product manager. My guest today is an esteemed colleague and mentor, Andy Abbott. Andy is a technology entrepreneur in Chicago who has co-founded multiple startups, including Booked Out, which was acquired the past fall by the Chicago-based firm ShiftGig. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Patrick. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for coming here on your Saturday or your Saturday afternoon. Um, some people might list or some people that are listening might not know your entire background. So why don't you fill us in on the the story about who Andy is, the man, the myth, and the legend before we dive in? <laughs> All right. I don't know about legend, but maybe a myth. Um, yeah. So as you mentioned, uh, I was the co-founder and CTO of Booked Out. Uh, managed that through their acquisition of ShiftGig or by ShiftGig. Uh, for those not familiar with BookedOut, BookedOut was a two-way marketplace connecting marketing agencies with brand and promotional staff. Um, recently, I ventured off to pursue another idea, uh, this time in the legal tech space. So currently, I'm the co-founder and chief technology offer of a company called Heretic, um, and we're building an artificial intelligence platform um, to empower organizations for smarter, faster, and more efficient legal contract reviewing. Um, I'm also the founder and community leader of Microsoft's largest developer meetup here in Chicago, host monthly uh, meetups on various topics, obviously focusing on the Microsoft tech mm-hmm. uh, stack. But uh, yeah, so I think we're at like 1,500 members now. So it's a pretty pretty wow. large group. I did not realize it was that large. Yeah, it's, uh, it is now the, the largest you know, Microsoft group. Um, it has been for nationally or no, 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 in Chicago, uh, in Chicago, but nationally, I think we're in the, probably the top 10. That's cool. Um, maybe even the top five. It's, so it's definitely one of the, um, go to kind of meetup groups. Uh, if, if you're in, you know, the Microsoft tech, um, or if you're just a, you know, a developer in general, we do, you know, uh, topics outside of, uh, Microsoft tech stack. So, uh, you, uh, Chicago dev.net, um, is the, the place to go if you're looking to see kind of what we're about and, where uh, um, when the next meetup is very cool very cool so um before we dive into this like i think it's going to be a great conversation because our topic ties into really kind of what you're like you you basically described there um with your background as your you're a cto you built out technical teams and you're actually in the process of building out a product so i think it's going to be good to take in just like let's just go in and start talking about like what it is to build a software team so you said you founded multiple startups. What has been your common experience when taking and building out a software team, maybe in Chicago or professionally, like in other markets that you've worked in? Yeah, um, obviously I'm a little fortunate because I do have a pretty vast network uh, through my meetup group. Uh, you know, I'm able to find kind of and pick and choose uh, probably a little bit more than a typical, you know, uh, entrepreneur, uh, especially when you're looking for tech talent. However. Uh, what I try to do is really focus on what the problem is, what I'm, you know, obviously what I'm trying to build and who would be the type of person uh, and, and, and the developer to help me with that. Okay. So, and, and, and because 
is this uh, an, an example? You know, BookedOut Booked Out was a, a, a smaller, I would say, tech um, problem from a complexity. However, we had to build a very nimble uh, multi-platform uh, solution. So okay. cloud-based um, with a mobile focus. Uh, and it was a very, um, our, our end user was very, you know, a 20 to 27-year-old. Uh, so it, presentation mattered, especially, you know, in the marketing and advertising yeah. space. So, well, we so set up the product a little bit. I mean, I know that you're not working on it, but what was the market that you were trying to address? Like, so you had the technology mobile, you had a desktop solution. Set up that project and set up how you decided to identify who you needed and when you needed to bring them on. Yeah, so we, uh, um, as I said, our target audience was really, you know, these these very ambitious, young kind of uh, um, in, uh, individuals. So they're, you know, anywhere from 20 to 27 years old. They're, mm -hmm. they're focused on, you know, pro promotional marketing. They're basically, I mean, they're brand ambassadors. So these okay. are the people that you go to, you know, a stadium or, you know, a, a football game, the Bears game, for example, and there's in the parking lot, there's always brands handing out free samples or getting you yeah. to sign up for promotions. All those staff or all those individuals are not uh, employees of that particular brand. They're okay, always so they're all individual contractors. Yeah, they're all contracted out either through a staffing agency or um, uh, through various other means. But um, so we, in, in order to address that market, we realized that these individuals were always on the go. So it's not so we couldn't build a typical web. Um, platform or a software product if it wasn't mobile focused. Okay, so would someone ever be on like two different brands that they would be representing, like have to go from one to another? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that happened quite frequently. Okay. So, you know, an individual might have a, a gig Saturday with, uh, uh, you know, at the stadium and then Saturday night they might, they might be, you know, slinging uh, liquor shots at, at, at one of the bar to sample um, uh, a, a various alcohol. Story of my life. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, they were both usually working two, three plus brands okay. in, in a given week. Um, and, and sometimes even on top of a, their day job. So okay. they might be, you know, working, uh, they might be a, a barista, for for example, at Starbucks, you know, during the week. And then at nights they go and, and do uh, liquor promotions. And then on the weekends they might be handing out, uh, um, you know, sample products at, at the Bears game or whatnot. Okay, so the identity, like to, the market was you have to take and build a application t for them to be able to, um, interact with yeah. their projects that they have to go to and yeah. be in the right spot. Yeah, so order, that's what you had to build. Yeah, in order to get their attention, we we knew that we had to be in front of them. And they're always on the go, so they have their phone on them. Right. So the target was obviously uh, mobile. We also knew that it just from kind of uh, research and stuff that we were dealing with a pretty much a split of iOS and Android okay. developers. So we knew that we needed to target, if we wanted to kind of go after the market quickly, we needed to, to build something that could target both platforms. We could either do that natively or we could build a cross-platform product. There's where came, came kind of the decision from a, um, you know, a, a infrastructure and cost standpoint. Who can we bring in and find what developers right. you know, exist in the market? And that, that's where we actually chose to, to pursue the native okay. um, build out just because there was a larger talent pool. Um, in the Chicagoland area, so we could easily or easier find um, uh, an iOS engineer uh, and and also an Android um, engineers, and and we actually rather than bring those on on site and hire them directly, we actually uh, contracted through a local dev shop 
to uh, to build out that part of the product. Okay. Because we um, knew it was a, a, a concise, short-term build-out for the, the MVP product, and then we could manage it and, um, going forward with a smaller staff. So we didn't want to bring in kind of full-time engineers initially um, just to prove the, prove the concept. Okay, so two questions that I have off that, right off the bat was, when you started working with the booked-out product and this opportunity as the CTO, um, what was the headcount? Where did you get to? And then the other thing was, what was the technology stack that you used um, besides the iOS, the Android, uh, and so on? Yeah, so we, when I uh, met my co-founders, I was the only uh, technology. And, and one is the loneliest number. Exactly. So that was, uh, it, that was fun because it's not just, you know, building, you know, the, the, the platform. It's also managing the expectations with business. Because um, all my, my co-founders were all um, business people. So. Right. They, you know, it's managing their expectations, then dealing with kind of the, uh, the product roadmap. We didn't have any product people. That was actually one of the first people I went after was to bring somebody in with uh, um, product management experience right. that, that could help me kind of uh, take that, those job duties off of my plate so I could focus a little bit more on, on uh, developing software. Right. Um, but yeah, so... Um, once we kind of uh, uh, got the mobile stuff in order, uh, the rest of the platform was all uh, cloud-based. Okay. My, obviously, my connections with Microsoft uh, and my experience with the cloud, I was um, went after Azure, Microsoft Azure's uh, cloud platform, because of just familiarity. Um, there's also a great program that Microsoft offers called BizSpark, which... Uh, gives you a lot of support and even some uh, cloud uh, sponsorship right. for early stage startups. Um, and so we leveraged that to kind of kickstart a lot of our um, cloud development, remove some of the infrastructure um, costs, because we also we wanted to be as nimble as possible. I didn't want to have to you know bring in uh, an infrastructure engineer to manage servers when I could build off uh, what's called PAS, Platform as a Service. Right. Uh, so you basically are building off the cloud, and then Microsoft manages all your servers. So you don't have to deal with that kind of hurdle headache. They're obviously going to be much smarter than what... Uh, well, because they're going to know how they already set the things yeah. up and I mean, put the they're, wires. They're yeah. the best of the best right. for, for, for you know, infrastructure engineers so, and system engineers. So that removed a lot of cost just by choosing the cloud. So we had, we, you know, we had our mobile teams working. We had um, my focus was then on the cloud and the right. backend. I was building that out, and then it was really just getting, uh, staying heads down and getting the product to the market. Okay. So do you feel like that the most of the challenge when you were trying to identify like building the team was like trying to figure out, okay, we need one person to do this, one person to do that. Like, was there a number that you had in mind to take in no like? From the market opportunity that you knew you like you have a in software development you have a phase where it's heads down you get an mvp out then you have a okay we got the mvp out let's get feedback let's augment that and then you have a scaling side of things yep. which was the like did you have a roadmap right off the bat like from what you needed to know like of what people you needed to go find yeah yeah there's always so there's there's i think a, always different paths to take and it really depends on the circumstances. Okay. So when I was working for Booked Out, obviously it was a startup. So we're we're you know focused on getting product to market and you know getting that first dollar in the door. Right. Uh, Get that revenue yeah. in, so you can have that 
plow that back in through growth. Yeah. And, and at the time, we were raising money too, so we have the we had a plan um, to you know how to a growth plan, how to grow the team, what, who we needed to hire first, when, and, and what for. But that never works out. Um, one, it doesn't work out because just just all the other stuff going on. Um, but also, there's a, there's times where an opportunity comes whether it's a business opportunity or even mm-hmm. a hiring opportunity to where you might have to to change your kind of path a little yeah. bit to take advantage of that. So, you know, we yeah, we did have a specific kind of growth plan who who we were hiring first, second, third or whatnot, but um you deviate a lot. So, nothing that we I, I, I don't even know probably if I, you know, went back to that plan and looked at it, uh it was definitely drastically different than the, the reality of what occurred at Book right. However, so if you're, that, that's, I, I would say, a startup kind right. of uh, um, path. I also have, you know, a lot of experience in large enterprise companies that's, yeah, and that's hiring as well. Point. Yeah. And, and that, I think, is a little bit more predictable and more focused to where you have a, I mean, they'll just be apparent that you either need to spin up another team or you have, you know, uh, some product and business requirements that just need additional help or, or um, you know, experience that you might not have internally. So you might you know, get to a point where your database is outgrown kind of everyone, you know, all your individual developers kind of managing it. Or you might have sure, sure. A, one uh, engineer who's kind of taken ownership of that. But at some point, you'll probably end up bringing in a DBA right. um, or a team of DBAs. And it, that's just you know, growth to where you as a, a, a technology kind of uh, a manager, um, you can quickly identify your needs. And it's, it's budget-based, obviously. For sure. And it's just, you know, you take kind of, okay, here's all our problems. Here's kind of the growth that we need. And, you know, then what's the budget? Yeah, absolutely. So, like, once you've identified that need, like, you're going after, you know, let's just keep it. I don't want to go to, like, a DBA. Let's keep it as a more of a generalist. You need a full-stack engineer. Yep. Like you say that you have you're either an established firm or whatnot, you're gonna go after that particular talent. I'm not gonna say piece of talent, but you're gonna go after that person, that talent. Um, where do you go find that person? Yep. Like, what is the marketplace? I mean, you've worked in Chicago, you've worked anywhere. Like, I think that we can extrapolate the data points from Chicago to a lot of the other major technology markets. I'm gonna use that as an assumption for this, but like, where do you go? Like once you know you have that need, how do you actually go and get that person? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think everyone agree will agree, and even regardless of the, the candidate or the position, you know, whether it's engineering or not, mm-hmm. the best place to find people is uh, your network um, or your employees' networks. And I, I, without a doubt, all the top kind of uh, candidates that have come in throughout my career, all the top employees have been usually through personal networks right. or you know my employees personal networks cuz you're you're are it's kind of they're already pre-vetted right and you know if i'm bringing somebody in i'm putting my reputation on the line for that person yeah you're so, vouching for that person's exactly, success yeah exactly so that i mean that's ideal if you if you can tap into those networks and there's actually some some software and and and, and companies that have come out targeting specifically that kind of that problem however that's usually i mean that's not always the case so yeah, i mean that seems like you can get lucky doing this but that's not the norm the, there's the, other yeah. avenues that you'll have to take and address and like filter out stuff yeah. so and there's there's a um there's points to where you can't 
um, you know, either you tapped kind of the network dry, dry or uh, there's points to where you need to focus outside of your network for, for specific reasons. Yeah. Um, and, and that's when I think it, it becomes a little bit more difficult. And it really depends, I think, on the size and maturity of your company. Uh, if you have internal recruiters, it's great because they take, I mean, it's, it's not an easy task to, right. to, to recruit in the market, especially in the technology market. Cause the, the, the market in Chicago is, uh, is saturated. I mean, there's not, I would say many developers that are on the open market. There's there, high demand. There's, there's, uh, you're typically poaching. Yeah. Um, especially if we, if you want good talented people, you're poaching them from existing jobs. Uh, and they they might not even be looking at all. Uh, it's it's really how do you find those 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 unicorn developers? Right. Uh, and you know where they're at, and how do you get how do you get in touch with them? Yeah. And, and I think that's where um, I think it does make sense to bring in people who are experienced with that. And if internally you have you know those those recruiters, then great. But if you don't. Um, it's it's worth looking into the recruiting market and find some firms or find you know independent recruiters that you're comfortable with and can trust and and work out an arrangement that makes sense for your company. So, do you think recruiting and reti- like this kind of goes into the next question I have is um, it, it looks at more of like what are common challenges that people ha- may encounter when recruiting talent and retaining the talent once they found it, but more often is is recruiting and hiring a short play or is it a long play or is it something that is deemed by company culture as well? Because that's a huge thing too. Like being a demand driven market where a developer, it's a developer's market. They're going to want to have certain things and they know that if you're, if you're trying to recruit them into your organization, you don't have those things. They can just, there's, I, I hate to say loyalty is, few and far but they can go find there there's somebody always reaching out i mean the amount of linkedin messages that you get and i get are astounding about people wanting for our talents so what are some things that like what are the challenges that people may encounter at firms software teams may encounter when recruiting retaining and what does that look like from a scale from your perspective yeah i i I mean i think obvious i think the first thing you want to do is is get candidates in the funnel so you got to source them somewhere and once they're in the funnel, then it's really making yourself attractive. And that's not something I think that you can just turn on. It's not like, you know, a faucet to where you can turn on and make your, your company attractive. You can't just have pizza and beer on Wednesdays and then yeah. you're an attractive organization. Exactly. And I mean, you got to, you got to realize what is attractive too. to, you know, something attractive to an engineer is not going to be the same thing that's attractive to say an operations person or, you know, maybe a, you know, a, a executive. So what would like going on that attractive part, what's attractive to you as an engineer? What do you, what have you seen from your personal standpoint is like beneficial from you to be a highly productive member on an engineering team? Yeah. I mean, for me personally, it's just the challenge. I I like problems um, that aren't just kind of, I want, I go to work basically to, to, to be challenged. I I don't want to show up and, and kind of just been, be given tasks and, you know, clock out at, at five. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if you're if some some people actually pursue st- stability, and so they right. want just they want to go to work to basically make a living so that they can support their um, their life outside of work. Right. And so it could it, and it could just be a nine to five job. And and 
and even in engineering, that that's the case. So are you, there are companies that uh, that's kind of the goal. They just need they have work and they have people. And I think the larger your company is, so large org, like enterprise companies get to a point to where it's it's literally just. Um, and I even saw you know I think a, a tweet that that um, the engineer is is the next blue collar worker. Uh, and I think it, it in some cases it is to where you you go in, you clock in, you do your work, you're you're given tasks, and right. and then you clock out at the end of the day. And and for a lot of people that's that's fine. For me that's not. You know I'm, I'm going right. to work and uh, wanting to be challenged. And it's also different in the startup. So it's it's all about um, the type of company, the type of culture, what you're building. You know, um, and and I think. You got to look at that, especially as an executive team, and figure out what you want your company to to be and right. how you want it to be perceived in the market. Yeah, because I can see it from like a, a standpoint where a lot of different sales organizations and other firms will fo- focus on like uh, the free beer and the pizza and the open work environment and this and that and the other thing. And those things don't like personally don't. Uh, affect me like free beer. I can buy my beer. It's probably better than the free beer that's getting there. Uh, a ping pong table. I don't like ping pong. I would rather have a environment where I can focus on developing a task, completing that task and not just like doing that, uh, you know, Oh, we got to do a B C D. It's like thinking about a, a product more abstractly. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of different, uh, people in the marketplace are like that too. Yeah. But yeah, I do see the other side of it where some developers are just in the, like, in the, I'm just going to grind because I'm good at grinding, and that's what they're going to do. Yeah, I mean, do. it's it's very highly paid uh, um, job. So, yeah. uh, it's it, it's not I, I, by any means a bad thing. I think you just have different types of dif- individuals. You have different types of companies, but it's making sure that you're if you want those very the types of engineers like right. I was describing myself is is the go getters, the the people that are looking for that challenging role you got to make sure that you're offering a culture that you yeah. know um uh, uh, uh creates that yeah that fosters that uh thinking environment so yeah. it's it's more of a long play and so you need to take and also be able to not just have the the, the narrative be short you need to have it be vetted because like i know my engineering network of people that i talk to we know like we're pretty we know what firms we want to go to work for and we know what firms we don't want to go to work for because the word gets around fast because it's like oh this is you know Johnny's firm doesn't let you actually work they say they do but they don't let you think about that like do you see that happen when you talk to other people as oh, well Oh for sure and yeah. and I get a lot of people both you know recruiters reaching out to me companies reaching out to me looking for candidates and then also candidates looking for you know their next gig and I always try to match them with uh, what makes sense. And one of the first questions is, it's not so much what their experience is, it's always like, hey, what type of company do you want to work for? Do you want right. to work for a, a large company? Do you want to work for a startup? Do you want you know, kind of the stability? Do you want to, to travel and, and consult and deal with consulting? Right. And so before I even get into kind of experience, it's really defining in, in what they're looking for from a culture standpoint. Mm-hmm. And then from there, connecting them with, you know, the organizations that I know um, that makes sense. So for you, what's more important, recruiting or retention? Uh, obviously, retention is, 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 is ideal. However, it's not – I don't consider um, retention being – 
you know, if somebody if somebody decides to go, mm-hmm. um, that could be a good thing, and not just because, you know, uh, I mean, it, it could be a bad thing to where if I I didn't provide them what they were looking for. Right. However, if they're getting a, a if their next role is something that I gave them, you know, the prepared opportunity them prepared for, them for, yeah. then that I consider that a success. Yeah. Um, and there's one of a. Um, our investors at Booked Out had a um, a great line that he shared with us that um, he looks for employees and when when basically when employees start with him, he's like, what can I do to uh, prepare you for your next role? Right. On day one, he says that to the people coming in, in into the door, and knowing so, that that's gonna be that they're gonna leave at some point. Yeah, in time. and it, so he doesn't. Like, ex- I mean, especially. I mean, in today's market and in technology. You're looking at any engineer that comes in is probably a two-year um, rotation. Right. Um, I mean, I, I would bet the average is is right at that. So where they're going to stay with you for two years, and then they're going to move on to their next role. Some people stay longer. Some people stay shorter. But if you look at just looking at all the resumes that come in, um, when I, you know, in, in recruiting people, it's about a two year, two to three year kind of span of people when people, especially younger candidates, you know, will stay right. at, a, at a firm and then they move on. And that could be from growth. The company just got too large and it kind of lost their appeal or, you know, they're they're ready to move on and they want to, you know, new challenges. I mean, it, it, it varies. And that's I, you just constantly you have to reevaluate your company um, to fig- to to ensure the culture still exists. Of, right to attract the types of people you want working there. That's interesting. I It, it popped into my mind. Um, what are your thoughts about attracting people as, like knowing that there's a cycle, right? What are your thoughts about attracting full-time employees versus going the route of having contractors come in where you're potentially working with an agency of record or even working with an offshore team um, in this whole, because that's a way, that's a method to grow fast. I mean, there's, there's, probably pros and cons to each of those strategies and there's reasons why you do one versus the other um do you have experience working with any of those different types yeah, of things all of them okay and i consider that you know part of my toolbox to where i view kind of the problem at hand from how much engineering effort is this going to take how much budget do i have is this a long-term uh situation to where i might have a need for um you know, uh, a front end engineer, Mm -hmm. but that need might only be for three months. And then after like this product gets out, I might be struggling to, to find them work. So for that, for that example, I wouldn't want to bring somebody in full time just because I know after this project, I don't have another project for them. And, and the worst thing you can do, especially in a small, smaller company is be creating work for employees. Right. You always want to make sure that you're kind of balancing um, that act of having enough work for your current staffing. Um, and if you don't, then look at other options. One could be offshore. One could be bringing in, uh, you know, a contract um, uh, individual. And it, it really it, it really varies. I mean, offshore is great when you need um, to build a large workforce. And right. even, even to, um, you know, cost is always what people throw around there. But I also look at it from, I can find offshore teams that are, are um, a well-oiled machine. So they're, you know, to be able to hire an entire team all at once and uh, um, that have worked together on various projects 
And the same thing goes with uh, you know local consulting shops, sure, sure. where you're you're finding that team so they can quickly um, dive in and, and start working in the project and because they have, have their to, their micro processes yeah. in, in in yeah, and you don't have to uh, um, they don't have to ramp up uh, as much. Um, they don't have to kind of deal with team dynamics as much. Right. Uh, and then, you know, some of the benefits are you can actually, they can self-manage okay. to some aspect. Offshore is a little bit more difficult because, uh, the, you know, obviously the, the time zone, uh, the time gap, um, uh, and then also sometimes the communication gap can be a struggle. But once you figure out how to, to deal with those situations, then you can really leverage them um, to, to build some, some great things. Yeah, so I think with the offshore thing that you need to take in, not just you personally, but people need to take into consideration when they're going to go that route is there's process involved that you need to be more of a high, highly on touch manager to take and make sure that you're getting what you want. Um, and this kind of, this is perfect because it goes into my next thing. So um, you need to be able to talk about different things that to be a highly functioning development team, um, you need to have like specs and all these other different things and product stuff. And you alluded to it when in the first uh, comment where you're like, First thing I did is I went and found a product person to take that off of it. So what are some processes that are important when developing that highly functioning developing development team? And also in your mind, what is a highly functioning development team? Yeah. Um, I think the more this comes into play all the time, but the more effort you put into a problem up front, the better you'll be with the results so you don't just start coding away and hacking and smacking no i mean sometimes you have to but right uh and this and this you'll see this the 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 larger the company gets the more process comes into play because they it, it, it mistakes are expensive so if you're developing a product and you don't hit the mark of what your stakeholders are or customers want and have to to re-engineer it that's a very expensive mistake okay but if you the more research you do up front and be able to identify exactly what you need to build yeah and then be able to to deliver on that obviously and, and to deliver the first time the better you know you are and it's you know it might it might be costly up front but i think ultimately you're saving costs because you're not having to re-engineer something right. that you already built so to hit that mark how do you take in put quantifiable or uh, objective mark goals onto what that is how do you take and define what that piece of problem that you're trying to solve that with code and technology yeah I, we so a colleague of mine um has this concept of, of defining the steel thread so it's kind of getting to that minimal viable product or proof of concept or it's exactly it's the best case scenario um, and building that out and then getting it to your stakeholders as fast as possible right. so that they can give you feedback. You, you can make changes or adjustments prior to kind of building out the whole, um, you know, the whole product. And that's, you know, this is the concept of waterfall development versus agile development. So where the, the more iterations that you can take in, the more feedback that you can get during your process, mm -hmm. then you ensure that you're building kind of uh, exactly what everyone's looking for. And then and then get to a point to where you might, everything, it might be the 80% complete, but it's good enough to uh, um, go to market. And anything past that 80% is just not worth the, the return. Yeah, diminish, diminishing returns yeah. uh, for that. So like, is there anything that from a standpoint going into that, like 
processes in agile that you'd recommend teams do when they're trying to take in like find out what that mark is I, like i think one of the biggest problems that i've always seen in startups specifically but is uh the lack of documentation or user stories or understanding like just the what you know because any developer can code stuff and make it good but there's always like the afterthought of like, oh, this is a bug or this is a bug. It's like, well, we didn't think about that in the whole thing. So it's not necessarily a bug. It's just that it's a, a misrequirement. Yeah. So what tools do you recommend teams like highly functioning development teams strive to put in place? Like the agile process talks about sprint planning, it talks about stories, tracking, all these different things. And I think most test driven development is on that uh, main focus. Like yeah. what, are, what have you implemented successfully and what have you kind of first off like what have you implemented that hasn't worked and then what has actually worked yeah um i think uh again like doing as much uh research and and kind of uh, work ahead of time before you write that first line of code is important right um the other thing that i try to do is remove a lot of the tedious stuff from the development process so okay one of the first things um I always do and my teams always do is set up continuous integration okay so that we're not constantly having to to push out code and and build and 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 deal with kind of getting our actual you know proof of concept or or current you know version to our end users it's yeah. just you know we set it up initially and then we can as soon as we commit our code it it automatically will get deployed and and notifies the end users and, then and it they, would be tested too yeah and then they can yeah run tests and 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 then our end users can provide feedback. So I think that's key because it's a lot of tedious work that over time you might not I mean initially it might not be a big thing. Right. But over time that actually does cost a lot. Um if you're do, especially if you're doing that manually. Yeah, debugging and figuring out what type of code is on this actual server versus actually looking at the CI logs yep. and see oh it's commit 12345 versus it could be any of these commits that somebody has thrown up yep. there. So that's that's obviously a good practice. Yeah. And the, a component of that is getting uh, um, having an environment to where your developers can can actually use the product. There's a lot of you know I think large software packages to where you're you're developing on in your dev environment, but it's not actually similar to what is in production or the actual product. It's like a hacked together version, and then. You work on this, and then realize once it, once it gets released, it actually is different than there's something different about the environment or whatnot, and and you run into problems. So we at, at Booked Out, we actually had multiple environments that mirrored from an infrastructure standpoint exactly what we were doing in production. Okay. So, uh, so you had a dev environment, you had a staging, you had a UAT probably, yep. and then you had a prod, so you could see where. Like the code would go across those different processes. Yep. So they would even they would touch. Not the same data in the databases, right. but they would touch the same schema. They would touch the same um, API endpoints, and the boxes were set up all the same yep. there. Um, that's interesting. Like, so did you guys use just straight um, VMs to take and do this, and was it running there, or did you use something like Vagrant or any of those tools to kind of create a local copy of it that you could just blow away? We weren't so our 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 infrastructure was uh, um, passed, so it was 100% platform as okay. a service. So we had, we didn't have the only VM we actually had in our infrastructure was our build server. Um, oh wow! Okay. So everything else was actually platform stuff, which made it very 
easy to deploy um, and, and manage. The pitfall was that is we actually required network. So um, an internet, you had to have an internet connection. If I'm if I'm developing, I had to be online. Okay. Uh, there's there's parts of it that you could do locally, and you could run uh, the majority of the project locally. Uh, but we ultimately would deploy a lot of our code um, to the cloud just so that we knew uh, that we were connected, everything was running smoothly, and we could then. Um, bring in the mobile apps as well, sure. and ensure that everything was working as expected. Um, but that was our that was our use, use case. Doesn't always uh, um, need to be that way, right? And it's I mean, just it, it really depends on looking at what your um, what your problem is. And with the with Heretic now, we're hundred percent different. Like we're sure. actually running VMs, and there'll be a little bit uh, more infrastructure that we need to build out, and less kind of uh, platform stuff. But, but it's a different product. It's correct. a different. It's a different end goal, and so you can't really take and put the same blanket solution correct. on every different uh, product. Yep. You use the right tool for it. So yeah. So tooling. I mean, tooling is important, but you can't say yeah, this tool works for the, these cases. It, it's really kind of. Um, exploring kind of your needs and looking out in the um, the market and seeing what's there. I'll tell so you right. It's, pr- it's processes that are the important part. It's not the tools Correct. that you use. Yeah. Okay. Because we even uh, initially at Booked Out, we we were for um, we were agile as every company is these days. But which isn't a bad thing. No. Um, and but rather than have some massive kind of tool to manage our stories and stuff, we actually were initially we're just using Post-it notes and a, a whiteboard. Okay. Because we just wanted to get the process going uh, and didn't want to, especially a lot of our interactions were with non software kind of familiar people, a lot sure. of business users that never had built software before. So my co-founders never had worked for a software company before. So I couldn't, it, if I would have introduced a, a tool that required them to be online and, and, and deal with all these stories like, you know, Jira or, you know, TFS or whatever other ones mm-hmm. um, you, you want to look at. Pivotal. Pivotal. Uh, it just there would always be hurdles that they wouldn't use it. They wouldn't figure out the process because, because of the it wasn't tool. in their ecosystem or their yeah. It was the to tool's fault. Yeah. So rather than do that, just simple post-it notes and a whiteboard, and then they understood the process. And then from there, as we grew, then we brought in some tools that made sense for right. our, our engineering teams. So what was the first thing that you had those uh, those people that were non-technical do that helped you to? be able to identify the problem correctly? Like, was were there planning meetings and discussions about what that post-it note was and how that post-it note should have been addressed, like from the development team and the product, I'd say the product owner, the person who was putting that uh, feature out there, to like discuss the viability of, oh, this is gonna take six weeks, this is gonna take six months, this is gonna be six hours. Like, were those meetings had? And if so, how did you go about like starting to actually implement that process? Yeah, I mean, we did as much as we could. Uh, we weren't perfect, and I don't think anyone should be. We got, uh, you know, had as much planning meetings that mm-hmm. made sense with the business stakeholders, got as much information out of them as we could, and provided them with as much information as they were willing to take. Then from there, we would um, work separately as an right. engineering team and do what we needed. So we would have full-on sprint plannings and stuff internally as our engineering group, 
and then would expose the stakeholders to as much as they were kind of willing to participate in. That's and it, it eventually, as the process would, uh, uh, would go, the product was delivered, the iterations would get out the door, they understood the, 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 what we were doing more right. and more. And then the buy-in came, you know, more and more. So it just it's a it's a evolving, I think it's a long process. Process. And you see the same thing in, in large companies that are looking to to implement agile. Yeah. Especially if they're used to kind of a waterfall. I've been through two large um, software companies that went from a waterfall uh, um, approach to then an agile approach. And it wasn't something that you just did overnight. It's, it takes it was, a long time. It was time. a year, year plus. Yeah. Um, before I think we actually had something working well. Is there a quantifiable metric that you can say going through that agile process with was better than not actually having stories or specs in there? Like it, it may be really hard or subjective to think, but like, do you think you were more in tune with what the customer wanted going through the agile process than when you were just like, okay, we're just going to build this because we think we're going to need it? Yeah, I mean, as you the more experience you have the more that you'll realize when i don't do stuff up front I, it bites me in the ass yeah almost every time yeah so when when we would release features um and they didn't perform the way that we expected or we didn't get kind of uh um it wasn't necessarily the solution kind of what the the the, the customer wanted right Nine times out of ten, it was stuff that we failed to do up front. So right. it was either, you know, if it was a technology issue, a performance issue, we probably didn't have uh, testing coverage, you know, um, accurate. Um, if it was a, a requirements issue, we probably didn't, you know, do enough research up front. Um, if it was, you know, a usability issue, we probably didn't have mock-ups done up front. Right. Um, or bring in a designer to, to ensure, a UX engineer, to ensure kind of what we were building made sense from a, a, a usability standpoint. So all those all those parts, if you look kind of when stuff doesn't perform or it actually fails, look at back kind of how you started right. and and more than likely you forgot to do something or just made it made at the time it might have been a a choice to to skip that. Right. But um but know that you had a decision made there. Yeah. So I think just to sum up this, like the whole thesis of this whole agile thing, because we talked about highly functional development teams is, you know, Put the tools in place, get a process, use, you know, get as much information out as possible prior to that first line of code um, and know what if you're going to take and say that you've actually, you know, you're going to skip doing this. Know that you've made a conscious decision to skip doing that and it's not going to be fully addressed mm -hmm. um, there. And no, I mean, obviously you don't try to be perfect because you'll end up wasting, um, I think, time time and, and cycles yeah and because ultimately the goal end of the day you're trying to get that product to market right so there has to be a point to where you, i mean and, and at, from my experience and i'm i've never been perfect and I don't even we, i don't think any of us have don't even that, try to, yeah. to to be like there's points to where we'll make a obvious bad decision but it's intentional knowing that okay we need to hit this deadline and so right. we're gonna deal with subpar you know, performance initially, and then we'll go back and, and, and address it later on. Right. Or, but, but knowing that that decision has been made is like, if you take in, you might get lucky, it might not have any performance impacts, but knowing that if you cut a corner in terms of like, you know, 
you didn't optimize your SQL queries or you didn't do this or that, the other thing, or you didn't have a build process, there might be a bug in there. That's going to, well, we did this. That's why that's there. You can't expect it to be perfect. No, no. So I think that's like, that's interesting. I think that's a really like, that's a good uh, understanding from like a software side of things. Now let's kind of maybe shift a little bit of gears and like take and look at the product side of things. Um, like how you like you're right now, you're in the thick of it. You're taking doing this. We're going to talk about from a software perspective, how do you identify opportunities in the marketplace? How'd you figure out that you wanted to work on some legal product, like, or any of the other products that you've done professionally, like yep. throughout your career? Yep. Uh, I mean, I can't take credit for the legal stuff. Um, oh, sure you can. My, uh, uh, my co-founder actually uh, brought that to me, but they, uh, um, we, we went through some, some, some contract reviews during, uh, uh, the, our acquisition, obviously. Uh, and so I, I was more familiar with the process. And then the more research I did, realized that this was a, a struggle across the board. So um, it's really just listening, I think. And and one thing as an engineer is you learn how to problem solve. Right. So you learn how to kind of identify situations that you can you can uh, improve on. And so I, my mind's always, always working on, you know, oh, what what happens if, you know, I did this or that, and how can I make this process better? And even, you know, there's a I think a funny story, and I, I wish I knew more of the details, but there was a an engineer at a a company that basically had developed enough scripts to make his uh, um, kind of job obsolete, to where okay. he was just going into work <laughs> um, and not do, having to do anything because his his entire job was scripted. He automated himself. He automated himself, and but nobody knew this. And it wasn't until he left that they realized, holy crap, you know, Bob has been sitting here for six months and everything he was doing was actually these scripts that he wrote. Bob's uh, a genius. Yeah, and he's, and he's a true engineer. And so he just realized that, you know, if I'm doing this tedious stuff, I can just write some some scripts. So I, so I think, and, and I mentioned this, I think, earlier, is the, uh, in, like, software engineers are, I think, today's, you know, blue-collar workers. They're getting, it's getting to that point. But if you look at kind of, um, you know, maybe in the 50s when when stuff like say you had a a shed that needs needed to be built in your in your yeah. you know you have a house you had a backyard and you you needed a shed to store some stuff you'd just go to the lumber yard and, and build it yourself or and call some some buddies over right so that's it's the same thing that's happening today these people um engineers these these kids and stuff know how to code and so they're they're building that shed with code now and they're they're solving those problems they have the capabilities they have the tools in their toolkits to solve these problems it's funny be and i'm chuckling a lot because i just did that this week i'm like okay i you got built this a shedder no no i didn't build a shed or anything but i'm like oh i really would like to have xyz just on my desktop okay why don't i write this little app right here that actually gets it and yeah. aggregates a couple things that i kind of want to see all the time yeah it's fun it's like <laughs> it's hilarious like yeah, so I think you have a resourceful generation that is using this. Like, okay, I think it's not MySpace pages anymore. They're like actually using it to do change how they're operating, how yeah. their lives are. So, you said listening. Listening is a big thing. So, let's just talk about the different places one like you can listen from a software standpoint. Like, you're obviously got this opportunity brought to you by your co-founder here, but. How has other ideas approached you in the past? Like, 
I know that you and I have done startup weekends uh, in the past, and that's an idea incubator, like where yep. you can find a lot of stuff. But is it, um, is there like any tried and true ways that you can like vet an idea once you've like heard it? Like, yeah, call bullshit on some things. Well, I mean, some of it is just obviously BS, but um, I think the once you identify a problem, it's really coming up with a some kind of solution to that problem okay but not necessarily building a solution to where it could be literally wireframes on a piece of paper and say hey does this would this work the concept kind of work or or figuring out figuring out the workflow um you know that it might all be manual but if you can figure out that manual workflow then it's it's easy to automate portions of that as you right. go but um Ultimately, it doesn't matter if no one's willing to pay for it. Right. And so how do you get to, a, a, uh, you know, the MVP, the minimal viable product, as fast as possible to test out your solution to a problem? And a lot of people will, a lot, a lot of people are capable of identifying problems and identifying the needs in the market and even, you know, um, realizing, I mean, coming up with great ideas, but then they're like, well, I, I don't have the the skill set to build right or i don't have the skills to do that where they are where they differentiate themselves from entrepreneurs are the entrepreneurs are like well i don't have the skill set but i'm gonna figure it out yeah i'm gonna go and you know i might not know how to code so i'm gonna draw up these wireframes on this piece of paper or which I'm, is an mvp in yeah. and of itself because you're taking giving what that idea is to some stakeholder yeah and so as soon as you can get buy-in from another individual right. about your solution, I think that's when you know that you have um, something there. And so, like for this legal, um, this contract review process, the buy-in was my personal experience. Okay, like I, we struggled with identifying um, parts of contracts when we were going through an acquisition, like whether. You know, these or this this one clause existed in in my employment agreement, or you know, our service agreements with our uh, customers, like who who had what and and what terms and all this stuff, and all these uh, items that we had to identify, we had to do in a manual way. Mm -hmm. We weren't you know a large corporation that could bring in outside counsel. Right. Um, we had to do a lot of this stuff ourselves. So I knew I very quickly. Um, realized that this pro process was painful, but then um, realized that this process was not unique. And so... So you identified that there was a market, there was the problem, and then you identified that there was a market of people that are sharing a similar problem. Yep. yep. And then, so th the next thing you did was what? Then you started to get some things out into the marketplace so they can test it? Or we... Like, so how do you quantify, like, if it's like... Because you have to take and do the math on it and say, is this problem a ten thousand dollar, twenty thousand dollar, twenty million? Like, how do you quantify yeah. that versus the time to build? Because if those economics, if you're trying to take and build something for profit, if those economics aren't aligned, then why are you going to do it? You yeah. have to have that business. No, oh, yeah, 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 and that takes time and it takes research and it's just it's yeah. really just work. I mean. I spent probably a month just Googling, yeah, um, looking at different uh, um, competitors in the market. Did some uh, kind of a, uh, a competitor analysis, and my team, you know, did as well. And we identified kind of what currently exists, what's the landscape, where can we 
um, tackle it. And there's a lot of, um, there was a lot of uh, fish around the contract creation. Right. And so we knew that if we went in through there, we were just another fish. So we we said, well, why don't we approach it from the review side okay. for large merger and acquisitions where there isn't a lot of fish there. However, now we're dealing with the big players in the space, right. the large, you know, the, some of the largest law firms in, in the world. Um, how are we as a, you know, a non-existent company at the at this time? Like, how do we become attractive to them? Yeah. How do we even take and in, get invited to those tables to talk? Yep. And yeah. So then that's when we, um, you know, uh, found some some leveraged our network. You know, we were fortunate enough right. um, to have a decent network. Uh, my co-founders come from kind of an e-discovery background. They have some experience there, so they had a network in that space. And then my, you know, technology background with, you know, some Microsoft network uh, and and machine learning kind mm -hmm. of experience and stuff. So combining all of that, we we're like, hey, we actually might be able to go after this. Yeah. So let's take that back because you guys had a network and you guys had you have an experience like you have a long background. You're in your career. You've done this for a while. What advice do you give to people that might be doing their first startup or a younger crowd that's trying to take and identify for this with limited resources, limited network? I mean, we always talk about the hustle and the grind. What does that actually look like? Yeah. Um, the first thing I'll say is don't quit your job. Okay. A lot of people are like, well, I can't do this unless I quit my job. Yeah, you can. I think it's the dumbest thing you do if you're pursuing an idea and you quit your job. Not always the case, but... If you have income coming in, figure out how to maintain that income right. while uh, pursuing at least at least coming up with that MVP. So get to the point where you're you're testing out your solution in the market and seeing and getting that buy-in and getting that feedback. Then once you kind of get that feedback, then you can reevaluate and say, okay, in order to go after this, I need more time to to focus on this. I might need to uh, um, quit my job. Right. Or I might need to, you know, work part time or something. Mm -hmm. But the longer that you can maintain income, the better shot that you'll have at success. Because ultimately, yeah. I mean, a startup isn't something that just you 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 go and all of a sudden it's working. And you know, a month down the road, you have a paying customer. Um, whatever your timeline is, double, triple it because it, it's never. Um, is short and easy as easy, and especially your first time, you're going to make so many mistakes. The second thing I would I would say is find mentors. Okay. Find people that have uh, either in this space specifically or just general um, um, entrepreneurs that you can tap into and say, "Hey, I'm looking for um, to do this part uh, um, or to do this thing. I need some help with it." And those things are um, how what you know legal entity do mm -hmm. I need to set up? So find some maybe a lawyer friend if you have one that can, is willing to kind of uh, give you some advice, uh, some, uh, accounting, right, taxes, um, business contracts. There's a lot of stuff, business stuff that has nothing to do with your idea. That's just going to consume your time. And the faster or the the more input and mentorship that you can find, the less amount of or the less mistakes you're going to make, and the, ultimately the more time you'll have to focus on your original idea. Right. Um, so in Chicago, there's obviously if you're from Chicago, there's some great uh, um, uh, co-working spaces uh, and incubators. One of them being 1871, mm -hmm. which has just a plethora of mentors. 
that are available. People who have been successful in their career and are willing to give back and help, you know, uh, new, you know, new, new stage startups right. get get their kind of uh, um, uh, kind of get their feet wet and yeah. kind of get like that. It's not necessarily accelerator. That's a different opportunity there, but it's someone that can help you. You know, use like it can help you get to that network. You yeah. know, it can give you advice and stuff like that. Yeah, because that's, I mean, that's, I think that's where you can differentiate differentiate yourself from others is being able to tap into um, experienced mentors um, and even advisors in your industry, bringing them on on board so that you're uh, not having to go through a lot of the same mistakes right. that they made. So, in order to get those mentors, first off, is a mentor the same as having an advisory board? Uh, no, I mean, yes, not really, but, uh, mentors I think are more personal, whereas okay. advisors are, are industry focused. Um, usually there's some sort related of financial, to your, well, they're related to your, um, your company or your startup. Right. So you'll bring in advisors that are, they might be industry vets or they might have, if you're, if you're, you know, doing something new with uh, an industry, you might bring in somebody who has experience, um, in that so like for instance booked out like we were doing um uh, applying some logistics type uh, workflows to the staffing kind sure. of model um a good advisor for us would have been to pursue uh, somebody in the logistics space chicago right. has a ton of logistics uh, uh companies a ton of very successful logistics uh Firms, people yeah so it would have been uh, very helpful for us to bring an advisor. I mean, that's kind of an example of what I meant there. Right. And so would a mentor be somebody that you'd want to bring in pre-validating your idea? Or is this something that you'd want to take and actually like be a little bit further down the road? Like, oh, I got an idea. We're going to build a gummy bear website. Andy, would you be my mentor? Yeah. I, or would you just say like, okay, I've got this and I've used it and have a little bit more. Because you want to be mindful of people's time. Yeah, I mean, yes, but also, I mean, if somebody doesn't have time to, to uh, help you out, then that's that's fine. Um, I think when you approach, it's the more feedback you can get earlier in your in your um, company, the better. Okay. So, yeah, I, I mean, I would go out and obviously initially I'd be focused more on the problem. Right. Um, and figuring out how to solve it, then focusing on setting up my business idea. Right. Or setting up uh, or finding a lawyer to patent my idea before I even have tested it out in the market. Yeah. Like, I think some of that stuff is just a, a, is, is wasteful. It's, and it's financially wasteful, too, right. because potential, the patents are expensive. And if right. you're trying to do that, if you, yeah, you could patent, you know, fake dog poop, but if no one's going to buy it or there's already stuff out there, why yeah. is anybody, why, yeah. why waste your time doing that? So, correct. That's cool. Um, yeah, so that's like interesting. So getting a mentor is a key thing for it. Are there any other things that you could recommend like in terms of prior to like it seems like it's mostly understand the marketplace, understand who you're going up against, do those competitive analysis, take and understand that marketing stuff. I think a lot of the things that like a general thesis from segment one and segment two that we've talked about is do your homework first before you write that first line of code, but know that once you've got your homework done, start to get it, write the code, um, and get that out into people's hands to validate that you have already seen the market assumptions correctly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, and I think um, the key thing in all aspects of you know building a company and whether it's or building a software team is being aware of your surroundings and culture. Mm -hmm. 
um, and just constantly re reviewing it. Because if you're if you're a large enterprise company, it's going to be very difficult to to attract a startup minded person, right? Because uh, probably your culture is a nine to five culture, uh, so you might be wasting cycles trying to find that uh, right uh, that engineer or, or candidate that doesn't necessarily fit your culture. If you want that candidate, then you have to look look at your culture and how can you make changes in your culture in order to be attractive to that candidate so it's a you know it's a two-sided kind of marketplace there to where do i have the culture that fits this candidate is this candidate fit, fits my my existing culture right and if if it's out of balance then it's not no, no one's going to be happy because the candidate's not going to be if you if you you know lie about your culture they bring it in they realize it's not a good fit they're not going to stick around yeah and in a yelp facebook review kind of culture now or that that type of environment that we live in, Google reviews anything, you know, your reputation and the word can spread fast if, you know, if you're not forthright with what you've, yeah, yeah, what you're putting out in the marketplace. And it's the same thing. So if you have existing employees and all of a sudden you flip the culture, you might lose some candidates because they're not looking for, you know, the very vibrant kind of startup craziness. They want the this very stable nine right. to five kind of job. Um, and so that's, that's a thing to where it, it, you have to constantly review your culture. You have to constantly review kind of your processes and, and make sure that everyone's happy and, and, and when they're not, make changes. Very cool. What's your top experience uh, to kind of like cap off this stuff? What's your top experience with uh, growing and building a team? What's your most positive one that you've uh, been able to um, I mean, enjoy the most? Building a team, it's 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 you know coming building a startup was crazy i mean it was but by far the most rewarding experience yeah. i've ever done you know being able to provide you know a, a fun workplace for great people um and and walk in and see all of these like incredible minds working on you know a a, a concept that you had and and following you as a leader is is I mean it's it's not something that you get to experience often and and that was I think probably the most rewarding thing that I was able to go through um, you know in the last few years so that's awesome yep that's really cool uh, Andy again thank you for being on the podcast today uh, it was an absolute treat and I hands down thank you thank you so much uh, for your time. Um, and as I like to do with all the podcast uh, guests that I have on here is I want to just open the floor for you. You got a couple minutes. Um, anything you'd like to share with us, like talk about like candidly, uncandidly, it's all yours. The floor is yours, my friend. Uh, I mean, obviously I got some new stuff going on, so, uh, it's going to be some exciting times in the next probably six to 12 months. Can't wait to go at this again and 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 provide um, and be able to share a lot of the stuff we're doing because uh, it's a it's a challenge that is challenging for me. Um, it's probably one of the hardest um, concepts that I've ever tackled. So I am looking forward to seeing what we can come up with and and how uh, um, we can solve some of these problems in the in the legal tech space. So. Uh, but to find out more and to follow me, uh, my Twitter's AS Abbott. Um, so two B's, two D's. And the company is Heretic, and our website's heretic.io. Awesome. And I'll link to all that stuff in the 
the blog posts and stuff like that. And let's have you on again once uh, once things go a little bit further down the road and we can do like a post-mortem about how Heretic's going. Yeah, I mean, hopefully we'll uh, we'll be able to announce some cool stuff and, and share a lot of good wins. Yeah, because I want to have a follow-up to hear about like how you identify the marketplace and used what we talked about today on this episode to grow your next software team. Uh, again, thank you for sharing everything that you have. As I like to do with all of my guests, I like to give a little bit of a token of my appreciation uh, to you for coming on the show. So Andy, there you go. Why don't you tell everybody what uh, what you're looking at here? Uh, it's a, a Forbes magazine with uh, Patrick's uh, um, uh, signature. Yeah, an autographed copy of an Ashton Kutcher Forbes magazine, you know, like I like to generally yeah, give out to my... It's going to be worth some big money someday. It's going to be worth something, at least like two ninety nine or something like that. <laughs> so, again, thank you again for spending time on oh, your Saturday course, here. Um, again, check out Andy's website. Link to us. If you have any questions, again, reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, we'll be able to do that. Thank you again for uh, joining us for Episode 8 of the Opinionated Stance Podcast. If you are here listening and still haven't done so, visit the website. The internet, we are watching you on the internet. We're looking for you. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Also, subscribe to the YouTube channel. This content's going to be up there in audio form. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, show ideas, please reach out. We'd love to hear all from our listeners. Thank you again for listening to this show and the shows in the future. Until next time, cheers. We're out. Thanks.